Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Simon Winchester, whose latest book is The Perfectionist, subtitled How Precision Engineers Created the Modern World. Simon Winchester is the author of I was counting 24 or 25 different books somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. I have a funny feeling we're getting up near to 30 now. Uh, among the books, Professor and the Madman and The Meaning of Everything and also The Atlantic, Pacific, all nonfiction. Let's talk about your latest book, The Perfectionist. When I first saw it, I'm going, do I really want to read about precision and then, as with all of your books, the basic thrust before you get into the specifics is storytelling. Storytelling is a major part of Simon Winchester's work, yet you've never attempted fiction, or have you? Uh, no. I, I've, there is one book which is technically fiction. It's called Pacific Nightmare, and it was published in sometime in the 90s. A publisher in London was doing books on what he called... I think it was future history. That's right. So he had someone write the history of an earthquake in Tokyo, which happened in, let's say, 2020, the history of the Third World War, and that was written by a group of generals. And then I was coming near the end of the uh, British tenure in Hong Kong in 1997, write a future history of something that developed after the handover, let's say, in 2010 or something which involved Japan and Korea or Japan and China fighting and write a history of that. And so I did. And it was a fun exercise, but I think the book sold about 100 copies and uh, vanished from the face of the earth. So I haven't tried since. This particular book, uh, the origins of the book come from emails with a man named Colin Povey, who's a glass blower. And I understand you just met him. Just. Uh, he wrote to me first in, I think, 2011 and said, hello, I'm a complete stranger, I've read all your books and I've liked them, and I'm fascinated with the idea of precision, which is a you know, hugely important aspect of contemporary life, but none of us really know what it is and where it began and where it's likely to go, so I think he said you'd be the ideal chap to write such a book, and the correspondence between him was voluminous, I mean, pages upon pages of fascinating writing, because he's a most interesting man. But you're right, we didn't meet until the first week of this book tour. And I was visiting a store in Washington, D.C., and he flew up from Florida. And it was a very emotional meeting. We're very, very fast friends now. And I, I think it's, I said, this is your book. And he said, no, no, it's your book. Technically, of course, he's right. But it, without him, it wouldn't have ever come into being, wouldn't have swum into my mind. Rather like you just said, would you ever want to read a book about precision? My, would I ever want to write about a book about precision? Well, he persuaded me, and I'm very glad he did. The moment that he did that, or right afterward, you went online, and you were part of a science network, and you began asking them about precision, and suddenly you were flooded. 
I was. There's a a, a network run, a, a bulletin board effectively run from the Museum of the History of Science in Oxford, where I went to university. I joined them. They're the, called the Retians because a Reet, R-E-T-E, is a part of an old um, astrolabe, and this museum happens to be filled with old astrolabes. And this community of Retians are all over the world. Very, I have to say, I mean, nice, accommodating nerds. I mean, the nerds par excellence. When they heard that one of their number, newly joined, that's me, wanted to write a book about precision, which they knew each of them a great deal, they flooded me with correspondence. And any way we can help, we will. So to them, I own enormous... I've never met any of them, but I just... To them, I owe an enormous debt. When this all happened, had Pacific been published? Had you been looking around for a topic? Pacific had been published, but um, I wasn't so much looking around for a topic because ever since Colin had been writing to me, I'd been sort of storing up information and contacts for the day when I would write it. It was what was the problem, though, was that my editor, the editor at the time, he's no longer there, was concerned whether this book would have narrative structure to it. And that concerned him deeply. And it wasn't until I really got going with the research and discovered that the first ever precise thing, which was made in May 1776, it was a cylinder for a steam engine, had a tolerance to it, in other words, the distance between the outer part of the piston and the inner part of the cylinder, of 0.1 of an inch, a tenth of an inch. And that number made me realize that if I organized the chapters around ever-increasing tolerances, the first chapter 0.1, the next chapter 0.01, the next chapter 0.001, and so on, that that would give the book form and structure. And the editor thought, that's a good idea, let's go with it. Well, each chapter also opens with kind of a story, sometimes about yourself, sometimes about others, before you actually get to the meat of it, which is what exactly we're measuring what the measure is and the history of the measure itself. Yes, I mean, I, I hope the technique, if I can call it that, isn't too too terribly obvious. I, I thought that the way of luring the reader in to um, you know, considerable complexity of these some of these questions, the better way to do it would be to draw on experiences that I have related to. And I, I didn't realize how many things I've done in my life that actually do have some relationship to precision. I mean, to give you an example, I picked up a Rolls-Royce that I was borrowing from a factory. And as I was shutting my luggage in the trunk, I felt a nick on my finger. Something on the car had cut me, and I thought, this is ridiculous. This is a Rolls-Royce. There should be no part of it that is in any way other than perfectly smooth. And I found a tiny screw had been misaligned in the covering of something, and it this little devil cut my finger. Well, not seriously, but it just made me think that the the old standards of making Rolls-Royce had changed, and within months, actually, the company was sold to who owns it now, which is Volkswagen. So um, in each case, there's a story, as you say, sometimes relating to me, sometimes relating to Queen Victoria, which <laughs> who had to shoot a rifle, and that lends, leads itself to another chapter. But I think it's a, a way of luring in the reader who might otherwise not be so keen, as you were suggesting, you might not be so keen in reading a book about precision. As it turns out, there's so much to it. As I was turning the pages, there was this factor that suddenly came into my head, and I think it's a factor in almost every Simon Winchester book, but particularly in this one, which is 
hey, you know, I just didn't know that, dot, dot, dot. And I keep thinking that that must have been going through your mind, obviously in every book, but particularly in this book. Yes, I think so, not least because, I mean, yes, I had a bit of a grounding in it because my father was a precision engineer. And I had, for journalistic reasons, a rather interesting and very intimate relationship with Rolls-Royce Motors. I mean, I hasten to say I could never afford a Rolls-Royce, but people kept lending them to me. But I know it's <laughs> tough work, but if you, if you can get it. I mean, the wonderful thing about writing nonfiction, which is essentially, as you mentioned, what I do, is that you're learning all the time. And in this particular field, I found that every other day I was coming across something which completely amazed me. I mean, if I can, I hope it's not too early in this chat to talk about it, but the idea that there are more transistors in the world now than there are leaves on all the trees in the world is a statistic which I find completely mind-boggling. So it's the finding that kind of thing which really excites me. Well, I also saw that uh, the lexicon of modern life in some weird ways, obviously the word Luddite, but several other words which you decided to put mostly in um, footnotes also come out of precision and how we measure things. Yes, although I'm interested to know what words you pick out. I mean, I, for instance, I was interested to talking about lexicography of that so many words in related to the car industry in its early days, garage, automobile, carburetor, they're all French because the French were geniuses in the 19th century in making these primitive motor cars. I mean, yes, there's hardly any. There's Renault and Peugeot, but that's it. Um, they're not a great automobile-making nation anymore, but they were there at the beginning, and the language remains. The entire book hinges, of course, on specifics, and the more specific we get, the smaller objects get. In the prologue, or preface, you talk about the difference between accuracy and precision, two words that are often used simultaneously, but they're not. No, I mean, to an, you and me, I think we generally use those words more or less interchangeably, and I do in the book. But to an engineer, they're very different words which have very different meanings. And if I can explain it easily, you think of a dartboard, and it is clearly your intention to hit the bull in the target. If you succeed in doing so, then you have achieved great accuracy. Accuracy is the achievement of your intention by your action the closest that something is to your intention. If, however, you're shooting at the same target and you hit a spot, let's say, off the centre, but let's say 10 o'clock, and you hit that same spot at 10 o'clock time after time after time after time, what you have achieved is great precision. may not be great accuracy. You can have both accuracy and precision at the same time. But precision is doing the same thing in exactly the same manner and achieving exactly the same result time and time again. And this is important in an engineering concept, which is crucial to precision engineering, which is making interchangeable parts. All those parts are made exactly the same, whether it's a trigger of a gun or the crankshaft of a motor car or whatever. If they're all exactly the same, time after time after time, then they will always fit into the car or the gun you're building. So precision, from the same root as precy, cutting something off, cutting off the same piece again and again and again. Again and again and again is what you've got to think of. That's precision. Accuracy is hitting what you want to hit. You had to kind of mold 
all of these areas into different chapters, not only dealing with smaller to larger, or larger to smaller in this case, but also the different areas, guns, cars, cameras, telescopes, clocks, watches, and of course eventually microprocessors. Simon Winchester, which was the hardest to get your head around and also in doing that, which was the hardest to find the information? Well, that's very interesting. The most difficult information to find out about is the manufacturing of microchips today, which, as you know, is dominated by very few countries, of which Intel is the biggest in this country. The machines that make microchips, or at least the, as it were, photograph, using a technique called photolithography, to put these millions, these billions of transistors onto tiny, tiny little pieces of silicon are enormous machines that weigh 160, 170 tons each. And they're all made by a company um, called ASML in Eindhoven in Holland. They sell these machines, which cost $110 million each, to places like Intel to help them make these ever more precise, ever more transistor-crammed microprocessors that we have at the heart of everything we use at the moment. And the commercial secrecy surrounding these things is unbelievable, as is, of course, the competition between the various makers, you know, Motorola and the Chinese and Taiwanese companies. So to get real information about these ultra-precise things was difficult in a way that I, I suppose I wasn't naive enough to think that they wouldn't keep some secrets, but that was the most difficult one to pry information out of unwilling people. How about trying to wrap your head around any particular topic? Well, there again, the, the topic is um, what happens, this is a sort of philosophical question, when you are making things that are so tiny that it becomes impossible to measure them, and that we're getting to that field now in with transistors, because you know it's been a long time since We've lost our ability to see them because transistors are always much smaller than the wavelength of light. So as that's what our eyes detect, if they're, if they're smaller than the wavelength, we can't see them. And so we have to use elaborate electronic devices to, quote, see them. But then you get down to the separation between these transistors on the atomic level. And then you're talking about quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics, I mean, even Richard Feynman, the great physicist, said nobody really understands quantum mechanics I certainly don't understand it. I don't think I wish to try and understand it either. It's just beyond me. But to understand ultra-precision, you have to be at least aware that it plays a part in, in making things so precise and so small. As these transistors are shrunk down smaller and smaller, basically using the equivalent of photographic equipment, you're almost working, or maybe you are working, on the molecular level it seems almost impossible to get things that small. It seems so, and I think it seemed to me that way before I embarked on this book. But then I found that not only in the electronic world are these things that small and can be made small by these engineers in Holland who are making ever bigger and bigger machines. I mean, that's the irony. To make things this small, you have to make huge machines. But it's also true in the world of mechanical precision engineering, too. I mean, I, one of the things I go into in some detail is the near-fatal crash of a big jumbo, or an A380, a double-decker, wide-bodied jet used by Qantas Airlines, in which the entire plane nearly came down. There was a massive explosion in one of the engines. 
caused by a pipe that had been mismachined, a pipe with the diameter of a drinking straw that had been mismachined by about a thousandth of a millimetre. And because of that tiny error made by one machine operator in a town called Hucknall in northern England, an error that was undetected at all the stages of inspection, so you have operating in an unbelievably hot environment at the centre of a jet engine, a tube which ultimately broke and sprayed the inside of the engine with oil, which burst into flame, which caused all the metal in it to lose shape, to detach itself and to fly out of the engine as shrapnel, and which nearly brought the plane down. And so one has to wonder, whereas both in the electronic world, where you're running up against dimensions so small as to sort of test the reality of quantum physics, in the mechanical world, you're talking about metals that are a thousandth of a millimetre too thin and which ultimately break and nearly bring 450 people to their death. So one wonders if now we're beginning to see, if not reach, see the limits of this extraordinary phenomenon. That story that you tell leads us to an explanation of how a jet turbine works and I don't think I could ever go on a plane again <laughs> without looking at that and thinking, oh, my God. I, for you, once you've done that research, does that change how you perceive getting on a plane or getting in a car? Yes, it, it does, without a doubt. I don't mean in terms of uh, apprehension. It's just awe that humankind has managed to make these machines with such a degree of precision, if you like, and such a degree with of efficiency, and which enables you and f nearly 500 other colleagues to sit in air-conditioned comfort, eating halfway reasonable food in a comfortable chair, and be transported to another continent in a matter of hours. So yes, I think about what goes on inside a jet engine. A jet engine is smooth and cool, and you just see a big fan at the front and nothing else at the back. But inside it, you have the most unbelievably high temperatures. and. Uh, a sort of quite literally a hellish, a Hadean environment. One of the things that I found quite remarkable was that in the high-pressure turbine section of a jet plane, which you absolutely cannot see because it's right in the middle, the temperatures that are occasioned there are much, much higher than the melting point of the metal from which the internal parts of the engine are made. So how do you stop these parts from, from melting? It's crazy. I know the answer, and it's a a fascinating answer, and it involves extraordinary precision engineering. But I'll never look at a jet engine now without a sense of absolute wonder. That applies even more, I think, for me at least, certainly to microprocessors mm -hmm. and how everything, the world, has changed and why the world changed around the turn of the century. Yes, I mean, the two big changes were the Industrial Revolution, which effectively began at the same time as the birth of this country, so 1776. In fact, very specifically, we know the first truly precise thing that was ever made was a cylinder for a steam engine, which was delivered to the maker of the steam engine on the 4th of May, 1776. And as someone said, that is Star Wars Day, so may the 4th be with you. Precision was born on Star Wars Day, sort of warms the cockles of my heart. So we know when it began, we're aware of the directions in which it takes us, but what we don't know is where it's going to go from here. That brings up a question that's completely off topic. Are you a science fiction fan? 
I used to be, and I think very much so. When I was at school, I read uh, you know, Bob Heinlein and Isaac Asimov and what's his name, Smith, who wrote that. Uh, Doc Smith. Doc Smith. I loved his stuff, but this is when I'm 13, 14, 15. So the roots of this world I'm writing about now were very much there, but how much like their world we are developing now in this, the real world, it is quite extraordinary. I mean, things like that we take for granted now, like the Apple Watch. And well, I mean, I talk to my grandchildren every few days for no money on a high quality video link provided either by FaceTime or by Skype. And that's exactly what people like Heinlein were predicting in this weird world that they invented for themselves in the 90s, 40s, 50s and 60s. And it's all coming true. And it's all coming true because of an invention of the ability to create not merely processors, but microprocessors, which, of course, Heinlein, Doc Smith, Henry Kuttner, none of these people knew. None of these people had the foggiest idea. And then came that breakthrough invention in 1948 at Bell Labs when Shockley, who's not a nice man, I mean, after all, infamous for his interest in eugenics, and Bardeen, and I can't remember the third man, but anyway, created, invented the first transistor. That's very, very simple thing with simply three wires coming out of it. And that was ultimately made useful in the binary world, on-off world of a computer. Thousands of things with offering ones or twos or ones or zeros, rather, could turn into a microprocessing unit. The key to it all was making them small enough. And that is the extraordinary ability that firms like this one in Holland, ASML, have turned a transistor, which used to be the size of a human fist, into something so small that there are these, what, 13 trillion made a day, unbelievable numbers of these tiny, tiny things which run, one might say rule, our world. With the microprocessors, we're talking about things that are so small, as you say in The Perfectionists, that... We can't see them. Yes, they're smaller than the wavelength of light, so the only way we can see them is through microscopes, electron microscopes. The only way we can manipulate them, design the chips on, on which you know, the architecture of them. And yet the people in these clever companies, like Intel, which is sort of supreme at its job, spend thousands of dollars and millions of dollars and hours of engineers' time to create ever more efficient, ever more complex chipsets, and these give us the abilities that we now take for granted. I mean, it, it behooves us all to step back occasionally and look at what we see in our iPhones. And not just say that th this is awesome, as indeed it is, but why is it awesome? And it's awesome mainly because of these tiny processes that are at the heart of each such device. Simon Winchester, we talked about what was the most surprising element, which was these microprocessors. But let me go in the other extreme. What did you kind of guess would be there? And it turned out you were right, that in, in a way, like the least surprising thing, but something that you really didn't know, but kind of guessed at. Was there anything like that? A million and one things. I mean, I, I think I, I never really understood properly the role of precision in making cars, for instance. That if you look at two cars, in this book I look at the Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost and the Ford Model T, which were both manufactured from about 1908 to about 1927, you would think on the surface of it that 
the Rolls-Royce is the more precisely made of those motor cars. Well, it turns out that's not at all the case, and, and I can see why. The Rolls-Royce, if two parts don't fit, then the man who is hand-making it, because Rolls-Royces are or were made by hand, simply files away a piece of the metal until they do fit. Whereas the production line, making inexpensive cars like the Model T, it requires that every piece that goes into that car is exactly the same, is an interchangeable part, is precisely made. And if one part comes down the hopper onto the production line and for some reason it's mismachined and doesn't fit, then the whole production line has to grind to a halt, all the workers sit around smoking and being bored, and an inspector has to find out where the problem is. So, oddly enough, although you think of the Rolls-Royce as being precise and the Model T as being a sort of the Tin Lizzie, the Tin Lizzie required much more precision in its making because so many more were made and made in a very different way with a production line, assembly line, than a Rolls-Royce, which has the reputation of precision, but it is made by hand. And so this contrast between handmade and machine-made sort of runs through the book and culminates in, in this question of are we perhaps pushing precision too far? Are we turning it into a religion? Are we fetishizing it? And isn't it better we step back a little and look at the world of craftsmanship? In working on this book, Perfectionist, and in looking at all of the various elements that found their way into the book, there's stuff you left out. Yes, I mean, that's a problem. There's tons of stuff stuff one leaves out. I, mean, I didn't write about much about precision agriculture, about precision medicine, thin films, about quantum computing. But I didn't want a book to be a sort of gee whiz type of book. I wanted it to look at the development, of, as this man Colin Povey suggested to me, of an all but invisible aspect of modern life, see where it came from, to look at its advantages and its disadvantages, many of which are social disadvantages, which have affected humankind, not always for the good, and then try and discern where it's going. And what I didn't want to do in the where it's going section is to talk in any great detail about artificial intelligence, or as I say, thin films, or quantum computing, or light computing, that's for another book, and a very different book from this one. When you were finished with the book and you had people vetting it, do you remember what your biggest mistake was and why you made it? I do. Well, the mistake which irks me and which exists still in the printed version of the book, which escaped the notice of all the vetters, was a simple and really rather silly one. I was talking about Royal Naval sailing vessels in the 19th century, because they play an important part, because the pulley blocks that sailors used to pull up the sails or to pull up the anchors and so forth, and which we learn about at school, giving us mechanical advantage because they have so many wheels inside the pulley block. And that, incidentally, the company or the factory that made the first pulley blocks in England was the first Industrial Revolution-powered, steam-powered factory anywhere in the world, and it continued running until 1965, so it was a piece which was very enduring. But in that, in writing about ships, I made an error which sailors have written to me about in considerable numbers, saying that masts of Royal Navy sailing ships 
I had said were made out of pine trees that grew on Norfolk Island, which is a little island between Queensland and New Zealand in the southwest Pacific. And they said not so. They briefly attempted to make them from Norfolk Island pine, but they were too flimsy and broke so easily, though they were incredibly straight. So ever since about 1820, the Royal Navy was committed to Baltic fir masts. And you are wrong, sir, to say Norfolk Island. Well, if that is the worst error in the book, I think I can sleep at night. How did you find the original information which was wrong? The original information came from, once again, a story. I mean, you mentioned story time. I had been to Norfolk Island years previously because I was doing research onto Pitcairn Island, which you remember, Captain Bly, the mutiny, Fletcher Christian, the Tahitian women, the bounty being burned to the waterline off Pitcairn Island. I went there. I've been there, well, twice. I was going to say many times, but I've been there twice. And there was a famine there in the middle of the 19th century. And those inhabitants that wanted to go were taken by the British government to another island that they owned called Norfolk Island, which is off the coast of Australia. And on Norfolk Island grow these incredibly tall and straight pine trees, Norfolk Island pines. And I happened to go to the library in the governor's mansion in Norfolk Island. And there was a book on the use of Norfolk Island pines in the rigging and masts of Royal Navy ships in the 19th century. And what I did not notice was that they abandoned the use of them after about 20 years because they were too weak. It's just that at the back of my mind, and I think Jan Morris repeats the calumny in uh, her three-volume study of Empire, Pax Britannica series, it was an axiom to her and to me and because of my visit that Norfolk Island pines were central to the Royal Navy. And these correspondents now have said, fiddlesticks. You're asking for trouble writing a book called The Perfectionists because you're attracting the attention of people who are perfectionists. Perfectionists are often, you know, pedantic, fuss budgets, and they will go at your book with a fine-tooth comb and see if they can trap you into all sorts of errors. Well, mercifully, I mean, the book has been out for a little while, no serious errors, thank heavens, apart from the pine tree selection. So I'm hoping that I'll survive and the book will be seen to pass muster by even the most perfectionist of people. Simon Winchester, I'd like to get back to some of your earlier books. The Atlantic is, as it's called, a biography of an ocean, and then you wrote The Pacific, also dealing with a similar topic. What brought you to that particular idea? Well, I grew up by the Atlantic, and I'm fascinated by the sea, and that was my first journey across the Atlantic, and I think the seas generally where, after all, life essentially originated, it seems to me that there's a story just staring you in the face. And yet the weird thing is that there are very few books about the oceans as oceans. I mean, there are political books about, you know, America and China facing each other off, or books on immigration about how the Atlantic was crossed by thousands of Europeans in the 19th century. But to look at the ocean as the ocean is seldom done. And I thought... I'm fascinated in that story, and I wonder if I can carry along people with me. The Atlantic did very well. The Pacific, a little less so. Many people say to me, well, are you going to do the Indian Ocean? And I'm not, I think, because it simply, to me, isn't just that interesting and romantic an ocean as the other two. What I did do between the Atlantic and the Pacific was to write a book about the United States, 
in other words, the continent between those two oceans. And that book was called The Men Who United the States. It was a trilogy. I, I, my publishers would never do it as a sort of box set or as a trilogy. But it seems to me now, in retrospect, that they do have a sort of trilogy-like integrity to them. Maybe one day in the future they might be issued together. When you're working on each of these books, is the hardest part molding them into something manageable? I mean, is that really the hardest thing? I always say whenever I have to give a talk about nonfiction book writing, I say there are three components. First of all, there's the idea. You've got to have a good idea. Secondly, you've got to write it well. But I make the point to somewhat surprised students that good writing, the fine writing, is not the second most important piece in the, in the creation of a book. The second most important piece is the book's structure, how you come up with the structure. And then good writing comes after that. Because you can write lyrically about an idea that you have, but if the structure's all wrong, the reader will get bored and will never finish. Whereas you want to do is to come up with a cracker of an idea, organize that idea into a way that is compelling, and then write your heart out about it. Then you'll, with luck, have a book. In any of these books, uh, the final product, is that a lot shorter than what you originally wrote? Or are you going from an outline that's sufficiently precise so that you don't have to do that? I write books in a rather perhaps overly disciplined way. I live on this farm in Massachusetts and my writing, my study is a building about a, a hundred yards away. So I, quite religious when I'm in the quote writing mode of a book. I get up at half past five, I make a cup of tea, I go over to my study and I read what I've written the day before and read it until about eight, making changes, deleting things, adding things, until by eight o'clock it's in a satisfactorily enough state that I can print it. So I print the, who knows, 20, 30, 40 pages that I'd written the previous day. Then I go back and have breakfast with my wife. And then at nine o'clock after breakfast, I go back to my study. And then I write from quarter past nine or so until about 4.30, effectively without a break. Then I leave and I perhaps go for a run or a walk with the dog or something shower, have a cup of tea, and then go back to my study for a third time and arrange the books for the following mornings, the following day's writing. And that lasts until maybe seven o'clock at night, after which I shut down the computers, go back to my wife and forget all about the book until I get up the following morning at 5.30 and begin the whole process again. And all throughout it, I have at the top left-hand side of my computer screen a counter which will say, and, and I know some people fault me for this, but it works for me, there's a counter saying, your contract says you've got 150,000 words to do. The deadline is the 30th of September. You started work on the 1st of February. That means 200 days, give or take. So 150,000 words, 200 days, that's 750 words a day. Are you ahead or are you behind? It's like one of those rowing machines in a hotel gym. And usually I'm ahead, and if I can remain ahead, then I can occasionally take a couple of days off. But my whole thing, and I think it's a part of being a newspaper correspondent for so long before this um, book writing career took off, um, is that I really respect deadlines. And if the Sunday Times or The Guardian would say to me, we need 1,500 words by 5 o'clock, 
then I'll give it to them without too many words and more or less exactly on time. And that has led me, however fascistic it may look, uh, is how I write books. The presses are going to roll whether you're there or not. And so many times, I mean, when I've been covering wars and things, you're standing in a phone box and dictating to a copy taker sitting in Manchester. And he's listening to what you're saying. In the most dispiriting time, these 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 old copy takers, who obviously doesn't happen anymore, but you can imagine them there with a fag hanging out of their mouths or some cigarettes hanging out of their mouths, typing away. And you're making your prose as lyrical and as beautiful and your sentences as well-rounded as you possibly can manage. And the copy taker typing away for 10 minutes says, is there much more of this? And then you think, my God, I want to strangle that man. He's not <laughs> listening to what I'm saying. Wikipedia has a story about how you became a writer. Uh, according to the story, you were working as an engineer in, in Uganda and read a book by then James Morris and suddenly said, I'm going to be a writer. But it seems to me that there's got to have been something before then. It's interesting. I mean, the whole James Morris, and of course, who changed into Jan Morris, now my dearest friend and mentor, still living with her wife in North Wales. There was, although I didn't recognize it, and I, it came back to haunt me, but in a very nice way, about 10 years ago, when a prefect from my school, I went to a boarding school in England, and as punishment, we were set essays, which we had to write in capital letters. The punishment was judged both on the content and also the neatness of the letter formation. And this prefect, maybe it was 50 years after we both had left school, wrote to me and he said, I remember you, you were a boy, and rather naughty boy, if I remember, in my boarding house. But I found in my study a few months ago an essay that you had written as punishment for me back in about 1956, when I would have been 12, say. I photocopied it because I think it's rather charming. It was called Denizens of the Deep. And it was about sea creatures, and it was really rather lyrical. I sort of wanted to jump in the sea and experience what I, my imagination had experienced back all those years ago. So I think you're right. I think there was something deep inside, and it was James Morris that unlocked it. And then once it was unlocked, you almost immediately got a job with The Guardian. Well, I had to do two and a half years prior working for a regional newspaper in the far north of England, Newcastle-upon-Tyne. But with not Jan's help, because she didn't help me get the job, but with her advice. And she said, if I were you, The Guardian is or was then a paper that very much gives writers their head. Try and join that paper. She had worked for the, or he had worked for The Guardian. And um, there happened to be a job opening in the city, in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, where I had been working for the regional paper as their Newcastle correspondent. So there I was now, ex-geologist, three years out of school, effectively, sitting in an office to cover everything that was happening in counties, Westmoreland, Cumberland, the Lake District, Northumberland, County Durham, coal mining industry, shipbuilding industry. I mean, I was responsible for it, for one of the leading newspapers in the world. So it was a a tremendous responsibility. Um, but they almost immediately, because someone had a cold, sent me to Northern Ireland for a weekend. And that weekend, there happened to be an immense amount of killing. There was a lot of, it was at the beginning of the troubles, and the IRA brought out some machine guns and shot a lot of people. And I happened, by great good fortune, to, to write the lead story in the paper, you know, with some accuracy, with some precision, if you like. 
And they were very pleased and said, well, you were brought over because our man in Belfast has got a cold. Well, basically stay there. And I stayed there for three years and covered all the big, big events of of Northern Ireland and got a, a little award for it, which was awfully nice. And then was sent out to Washington and covered Watergate and then on to Delhi. And so it went on, the life of a typical foreign correspondent. Simon Winchester, one other element that pops up in The Perfectionists is the relationship of all of this advance, all of these, all of this progress to social issues with the microprocessor and social media it's gone even beyond other elements, but then you go back and realize that our current society was formed during the Industrial Revolution, which again changed everything. Hugely. I mean, not least, it created cities. I mean, so you have the, the first precisely made steam engines, which saw the birth of the Industrial Revolution, if you like. And then there were consequences which were quite unimagined, which required the making of other devices, which were hitherto quite unimagined. And a classic example is that steam engines produced industry and industries making all sorts of things were spotted all over the United Kingdom. Cities flourished as a result. The people who made themselves rich out of these new factories making whatever they were, whether it was clothing or shoes or washing machines or whatever, would make great fortunes. And they built their houses in cities, which previously didn't really exist. So you have rich people in cities living cheek by jowl with people that were very poor. Whereas prior to that, the rich in England were landowners out in the country and they didn't have any poor people near them at all. Now, rich people had poor people living just down the road. Putting rich and poor together breeds envy and envy breeds crime. So all of a sudden, these rich people sitting there in London, Manchester and Birmingham and Liverpool thinking we're afraid of the people that are, you know, they may come and rob us. So they build you know, strong houses and stout front doors and very sophisticated mechanical locks made with great precision. One of those locks is at the heart of one of the chapters in the book because it is symbolically so important. It resisted anyone breaking it or, or picking it for 61 years until an American came across in about, well, 61 years after it had been displayed to break it. That story leads me into the world of making tiny things like a lock, very precisely, but also the man who made it was a chap called Henry Maudsley, and he invented the concept of flatness, of things to be perfectly, perfectly flat, which is absolutely essential in making things that are precise. So inadvertently, by telling the story of a lock, you can begin to tell the story of a concept like flatness, which is why, for me, this book was so enjoyable to write. Uh, well, moving on to microprocessors, we don't even know the social implications because it just happened, but we can see them. And one of them may be Donald Trump. And I'm not sure whether his ignorance and stupidity ties into the fact that microprocessors allow someone to function or not. That's very interesting. But the social consequences of the microchip, I think, are very evident now with, you know, the fascination with pornography, the whole business of instant communication, instant um, social media, instant judgment calls about people in 
things that people hitherto would have kept under their hats are now blurted out and people have hurt feelings and there's anger and you know the advantages obviously of looking anything up when you're trying to settle, settle an argument and you look it up on Google are great there's no doubt about it the ability to find information using the internet is amazing but the social consequences you're right we haven't fully understood them but they are clearly as profound today as they were in the 18th century when the Industrial Revolution began. Well, the reason I asked that also is as I was reading the chapter on the Hubble, I kept thinking of the fact that the current administration is anti-science. And where are we going when, at the one hand, we have all of this science and the technology, as you talk about in Perfectionists, to put it together? And on the other hand, we have people who are in government who don't actually believe that science exists. I know, it's, it's so embarrassing and painful. I mean, you take someone like James Inhofe, I think a senior senator from Oklahoma, who is a certifiable lunatic. I mean, that man is so primitive, so stupid, so uncomprehending of the realities of science that it beggars belief that he has any position of authority in this country and that policy because he's a good Republican, supportive of those who are currently in the White House, wields enormous power. And yes, these Neanderthals who have no particular interest in science and disbelieve it and distrust it and would prefer to go you know, the route of the evangelical church and the creationists are going to do this country an immense amount of damage. It's standing in the world and slow down significantly the rate of progress on the planet. So... I mean, science, one mustn't fetishize science. Science is a form of study which must be respected and not turned into a religion, but at least some measure of understanding might be accorded to it. And I'm afraid now we have an administration where almost to understand anything is regarded as somehow disloyal to some overarching God-directed madness and... Uh, I want that to come to an end soon, but we're not here to talk about politics, but I think you can gather where I'm coming from. I went on IMDb. There is a movie of Professor and the Madman with Mel Gibson, Sean Penn, and Natalie Dormer coming out. That is indeed true. It's slightly, it's, they've done 41 days of filming. They've spent about $25 million. I've been to see the shooting with Mel and Sean and Natalie and other people like Jennifer Ely, who you may remember from playing Elizabeth Bennett in... Uh, Pride and Prejudice. So it's an all-star cast, and they're very, very good. But there is a small problem in that they want to go to Oxford to do three days of shooting, which you can imagine is reasonable for a book about the Oxford English Dictionary. But the producer, a Frenchman, who, for his own reasons, doesn't want them to. And they're having a bit of a tussle about that. But I had lunch with the director the other day, and he's fairly confident that the this log jam is going to be unjammed. And They'll resume production soon, and I imagine it may be out this uh, this autumn. Did they approach you? Or how did that work? What had happened was Mel Gibson bought the property, the film movie rights, uh, from the professor way back in 1999, I think it was, and has held on for them for years as a what he calls a passion project. He had commissioned three, if not four, screenplays, and only when he came up with the most recent screenplay, which is written by the man who's directing the film, a chap called Farhad Safinia, did he feel satisfied and wants to go ahead with the movie. I've read the screenplay. It's completely wonderful. 
And uh, Farhad, you know, I have great friends. I saw him recently for lunch. And uh, But in terms of did they approach me, and they paid me some money to buy the rights for the film. But when I went over to the set in Dublin, they were terribly nice. They said, Mr. Winchester, this is probably your first time on a movie set. And you may have a temptation as the writer, but our advice to you is be there to advise us if we ask you, but otherwise don't interfere. Is the screenplay more about precision or accuracy or neither? It's certainly not precise, but I think they they get it at the end. I think Farhad's screenplay has in the end great intellectual accuracy. Simon Winchester, when we began, we were talking a little bit about your different projects. You have several projects, I guess, in the fire that you're researching now. What is the next one going to be? Do you know? There are three ideas that I'm working on each, I think, has equal merit. One is about a lawyer and an extraordinary case in San Francisco, which uh, uh, took him 30 years to fight, in which the fight began in 1945 and relates to the Japanese um, who were incarcerated in the 10 concentration camps that were dotted around the country during the Second World War. Another story relates to something bizarre that my mother, my late mother, told me when I went to Buckingham Palace to get an award from the Queen. My mother got a bit drunk and told me something about the family, which, when I unspooled it, turned into the most remarkable story of espionage and sex and crime and Hollywood. And I'm a mother, a very respectable woman. I, I can never imagine this happening. And then the third thing is I want to do a big fat book on the history of land and using as its spine the great land runs in Oklahoma in the 1880s to look at in some detail humankind's love for land, ownership of land, whether anyone really does own land, should own land, and how land has been treated over the years in all sorts of countries, including, of course, the United States and including in Oklahoma. Which is the one with the next contract due? None of those three has been signed, but once I get back stopping promoting this book, I'll sign them. And which one do I want to finish first? I think probably Wayne Collins, who is the lawyer, and I have all the papers and I've just got to do a bit of traveling. My wife and I have already been once to all the internment camps. We want to go again. I think that will be probably the contract in um, 2020, I would have thought, for a publication in 2021. And you can listen to other interviews either as Radio Olinsky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.